Amen. Take your copy of God's Word and turn once more in this December month to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Hear now the Word, the living God. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on the preaching of His word. Almighty God, we ask now that you would grant to us by your Spirit the grace that we need to hear your Scriptures proclaimed. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We pray that he would be active in our hearts this day. In Jesus' name. Amen. Consider, if you will, the beauty and the glory of the creation. Consider pristine mountains, skies, stars shining in glorious, shimmering praise to their Creator. Consider, if you will, a perfect creation. Consider the trees of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all working by the word of the triune God. And then consider the utter corruption that enters it following six days of creation and a day wherein the Lord rests. He ceases. Creation as it were becomes marred. And the hearts of the image bearers of God, man and woman, become tainted with sin. They become addicted to sin. They invent sinful delicacies. They no longer love God as they ought, and they no longer love themselves as they ought. They're separated from one another. There is psychological distance between human beings. More importantly, there is spiritual distance between creature and Creator, because human beings have died. Oh, they very much breathe, their hearts very much beat, but they have ceased to be spiritually alive. They have become covenant breakers. And within a few years, blood from murder covers the ground. And it is that blood that continues to stain the ground For thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years, men become haters of one another. Groups of men kill other groups of men. Groups of men and women hate other groups of men and women for a whole host of reasons. You're not like us. Your skin color is not like ours. You don't have our customs. And so they murder And the blood stains the ground. 
The creation, of course, becomes cursed. It is a good creation, but now it doesn't work the way that it ought to work. And it seems as if the glorious tapestry that is the creation of the world has become marred by the sins of God's chief image bearers, and now it's all corrupt. God, of course, had begun the entire thing with the promise In the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day that you disobey me and break my law on your hearts, you will die. Death reigns where life should be. This is our world, beloved. And unless the living God brings about a new humanity we will all enter the dust of the ground and be lost forever. But humanity has no representative any longer. Its representative, Adam, has fallen. Adam's sons and grandsons and great-grandsons all the way down through the ages fail None of them is declared a federal head representing all of humanity, but if one could be found to represent all of humanity, he would simply look like his father Adam. There seems to be no hope for a new humanity. God's world seems to be full of death, sin, and corruption, and the most wicked of ways. But when the fullness of the time had come. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Brothers and sisters, we've spent two weeks together in this passage of Scripture, and today we spend a third, because in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, we see at least four themes about the coming of Christ You recall, Paul, early in his apostolic ministry, is trying to defend the Gospel against those who would say you have to add to the work of Jesus if you're going to be saved. That's really the theme of the book of Galatians. And as his symphony of Gospel defense rises, he gets to the crescendo of Galatians 4, 4 and 5, where he says four things, really about the coming of Christ. This coming happened when the time was right, when the fullness of the times had come. When the prophetic word was ripe to be performed. When the nations were in the right spot. When God in His infinite providence brought about this coming. It was the fullness of time. But secondly, God sent forth His Son. The One sent is eternal God. But today we look at this phrase, born of a woman. If I were to lay my cards on the table, it would simply be this. That each of us today would read this phrase that our Savior was born of a woman and savor the glorious reality that we have a God-man who represents us. Well, let's look at this phrase. Thirdly then, in addition to considering the timing and the true divinity of Christ, let us consider thirdly His true humanity. 
The text says that Jesus was born of a woman. This clearly expresses a true humanity. Boys and girls, Jesus, who was born 2,000 years ago, put on human flesh. He became man, but He has always existed. The second person of the Trinity. The eternal Son of God, who has always been the Son of the Father, put on flesh. For those of you who like to get technical with theology, we say He assumed our nature, our flesh. But it says He was born of a woman. Is this Paul just giving a description? Or is there theological significance? Why not born of parents? Well, of course, we remember the promise in Genesis 3.15, don't we? Shortly after the fall, Satan is told, there will come a seed from the woman, and he will crush you. Later on in Isaiah, we hear the precious promise that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. But I would submit to you that the virgin birth of Christ, for those of you that might be new to Christianity, Christians have said from the very beginning that this one was born of a virgin, a woman who knew not a man. Mary conceived by the Holy Ghost. And this mention of a woman I think carries with it the reality that there is the absence of an earthly father. There is no earthly father like his father Adam, as covenant breaker. And this becomes important. Listen to some theologians down through the ages. Born of a woman. Herman Bovink in the early 1900s says this, quote, The exclusion of the man from his conception at the same time had the effect that Christ, as one not included in the covenant of works, remained exempt from original sin and could therefore also be preserved in terms of his human nature, both before and after his birth, from all pollution of sin. A new humanity, not tainted with the evils that fill our veins. John Gill, a Baptist, 1700s, quote, of a woman without a man, of a woman, a virgin, as was foretold, and not only made and formed in her, but of her, of her flesh and blood, of which he took part, and which denotes the low estate and great humiliation of Christ, and shows that as sin came into the world by the woman, the Savior from sin came also the same way. I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, this isn't just a detail of how Jesus was born. It is full of theological significance. He partook of the flesh and blood of His mother Mary by God's design. But unlike every other human being tainted by the fall of Adam, our glorious Savior and His flesh, which later would be called our food, was completely untainted from the pollution of sin. He was, as it were then, according to Paul, and He is truly God 
but truly and very man, born of a woman. But why then does the humanity of Christ matter? Why does this matter? Let's consider then this phrase, born of a woman, and walk through the pages of Scripture. I just want to give you four things and then we're finished. Reasons why the true humanity of Christ matters. Why it is important. Number one, because it fulfills Scripture. It fulfills Scripture. It shows that God keeps His Word. God makes statements and then He makes good on those statements. He never fails. There is no shadow of turning with Him even in His promises. You may say, well, where did the Old Testament Scripture or the Scriptures prior to the birth of Christ promise His humanity? Well, Genesis 3.15 to begin with. You can turn there if you like, but you remember, I think it's of glorious perfection that the words are spoken to the face of the serpent. There is going to come one who is born of the woman. And you evil serpent, accuser of the brethren, one who stirs doubt, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. By the end of the book of Genesis, as we saw last week, we get to that great patriarch blessing all of his sons Surprisingly, after chapter after chapter of the story of Joseph, we think it's going to be him. Joseph seems to be upright. Maybe it's him or maybe it's one of his offspring. But it's not from him, but from Judah. Genesis 49. Continual promise. Judah, you will have a son who will be king. This theme continues then all the way through David. David is an upstanding guy until he's not, like every last one of us. And David receives promises, similar promises to Judah. David is, of course, Judah's great-great-great-great-grandson. What promise did David receive? 2 Samuel 7. God is making, as it were, a covenant with him. Your house will always have a king on the throne. But of course, these promises carry through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 7. You can turn there. It's often read at Christmas time, isn't it? It's really a passage of Scripture for all 52 weeks of the year. Isaiah 7. There we hear these words through the prophet Isaiah. Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. Human beings only bear human beings. Bear a son. 
and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, yes, scholars, I think, are right similarly to 2 Samuel to say in Isaiah 7. There's an immediate context happening here about immediate promises, but ultimately promises that find their fulfillment in the coming of Christ. But another prophet tells us of the birth of this one who is truly man. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. We're even told the place where he's going to be born. Now maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Someone invited you to church because it's Christmas season and you decided to come. You need to understand that everything that we're talking about here is about Jesus Christ, but I hope that you're seeing that books of the Bible written hundreds of years before Christ came tell us things that actually come true. Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, there he is again, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And then he tells us a little bit about this one. Whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. But of course, there are passages in the Old Testament that speak to the humanity of Christ that don't necessarily neatly fit in this one line of the promise of the seed of the woman, and yet they're there. One, just one example. Let me take you to the book of suffering. Perhaps the man who suffered some of the most in all of the Old Testament. Job, chapter 19, verses 25 and 26. In the midst of his crying out, in defense against his friends, and in his grief, he says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. You have to look a little bit closely because Job doesn't say in the midst of his suffering, I have a Redeemer who is fully God and fully man. But what does he say? I know that he lives. And on this physical earth, he will stand. And then he says this. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see. For myself, my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. And of course, there are some New Testament promises right before the birth that point to the humanity of Christ. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Boys and girls, you may remember this story. Maybe mom or dad has read it to you already in the last week or two in family worship. The very first chapter of Matthew, some of you know all of these names. You just sang them for us a week or two ago. But a little lower than all those names with funny sounds. Promises were continuing to be given. Matthew 1.20, But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son. 
and you shall call his name Jesus. Yeshua. For he will save his people from their sins. Brothers and sisters, we need to linger on this phrase of Paul in Galatians 4, 4, that this one came in the fullness of time, that he is fully and truly God, but he was born of a woman and considered that this is important because it fulfills Scripture. But secondly, it's important because a substitute has been provided And I want you to enlarge your mind's eye for a minute as you think about Christ. Not just a substitute on the cross, although he very much is that. I want you to broaden out your view of the substitutionary work of Christ. Not just his death, but all of his being and all of his life according to his humanity. For this, consider Hebrews. There, the writer of Hebrews makes some very startling claims. He says this, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus, likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who, through fear of death, were all of their lifelong subject to bondage. Now notice just a few verses earlier in Hebrews 2.11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. He had to be made like us that he might redeem us. The early church father Gregory of Nazianzus says this, quote, for that which he has not assumed, he has not healed, end quote. Broaden out your view then, beloved. Listen to what the Scripture says. I won't read all of these Scripture passages, but Luke 2.40 says that Jesus had a human infancy. He was a baby, Luke 19.41 said that Jesus had human tears. Your tears often fall mixed with sin, but His never did. Your infancy was filled, as it were, with beginnings of expressions of your sinful nature. His never was. Matthew 26.38 says that Jesus had human grief. Grief is not a sin, So often we grieve and we sin. His grief was untainted, unpolluted by any kind of sin. Matthew 8.20 says that Jesus had a human body. Matthew 26.38 says that Jesus had a human soul. You need to remember that when we think about the Christ, He's truly God and truly man. So all that God is, He is according to His divinity. But all that we are, He is according to His humanity. And what are we? We're body and soul. Don't forget, this text says that Jesus experienced agonies in His soul. Not His divine nature, but His human soul. And brothers and sisters, when I experience not nearly that kind of agony, but when I experience agony in my soul, it is tainted with sin. But His never was. 
this corruption, disturbing the pristine creation of all that is, never once flowed through his body or soul. Matthew 26, 39 says that Jesus had a human will. Now think about the need for you to have a substitute human will. Your will, my will, is so corrupt, isn't it? We can't wait sometimes to sin. We go to bed sometimes devising ways that we will sin the next day. We will things. We choose them. Our intellect informs our will. Our intellect is broken and sinful and it, it, it informs our will and we make sinful choices. Never once did the second Adam have any sin tainting his will. He had human needs. Matthew 4.2 said that Jesus was hungry. You ever sin when you're hungry? I was going to say boys and girls, but I didn't want to limit the assumption. <laughs> uh, John 19.28 says that Jesus thirsted. Every single time he experienced hunger pains or the need for fluid, he did it sinlessly. Just read the Gospels and see every single thing that Jesus did according to His humanity, was without sin. You have a substitute, not just on the cross. He laid down His head at night on His pillow and His will was never choosing sin. His intellect was never stimulated by the thought of temptation moving Him to evil. You don't just have a substitute on the cross. You have a substitute when you're hungry when you're thirsty, when you're grieving, when you're crying, when you're a baby, when you're a teenager, when you're an adult. Perfect. Uh, Luke 2:52 tells us a little bit about the growth of Jesus. You know, that's the passage that says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor. With God and man. You see, boys and girls, Jesus did grow. He learned things according to his human nature. The person, Jesus, learned according to his human nature. As the eternal Son of God, there has never been anything that he doesn't know. But he actually learned. He memorized Scripture. Think about the 12-year-old boy, Jesus. Sometimes we, we look at him and we think, ah, well, he was debating with the religious leaders, but you know, he's God. <laughs> we too quickly read the Gospels and just go to the divine nature of the Christ. He actually learned. He learned how to memorize Scripture and he learned how to think. One Christmas carol that we often sing sometimes, once in Royal David City, says that Christ is our childhood's pattern. You want to consider how to train your children? Don't just teach them about biblical masculinity and femininity. Teach them to think. Teach them to memorize Scripture. That's what their Savior did. His mind was expanded. But sinlessly. He never complained about doing homework, boys and girls. He never tired. When Joseph or Mary said, what did we hear when the Scripture was read in synagogue today? He assumed 
every last bit of human nature so that he could redeem and heal every last bit of it. Why is it so important for Paul to say that Jesus was born of a woman because it fulfills Scripture, but because a substitute has been provided, and not just a substitute for the cross, a new humanity. And if by faith Christ is yours, you are in that new humanity. Thirdly, it's important because of this. Because Jesus was born of a woman, he could accomplish redemption. You may say to yourself, well, what do you mean he could accomplish redemption? Well, let me take you back to Hebrews 2 for just a moment. And then let me read a brother's writing to you. Hebrews 2.17 says this, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, his brothers and sisters, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Boys and girls, Jesus had to be fully and truly human because God cannot die. But we need a human substitute to take the penalties that we as human beings have incurred because of our sinfulness. It may sound like a funny name, boys and girls, but one of our brothers in the faith, about 1,700 years ago, a man by the name of Athanasius wrote these words. The Word, the Son, perceived that corruption could not be got rid of otherwise than through death. Yet he himself, as the Word, being immortal, and the Father's Son was such as could not die. For this reason, therefore, he assumed a body capable of death in order that, through belonging to the Word who is above all, might become in dying a sufficient exchange for all, and itself remaining incorruptible through his indwelling, might therefore put an end to corruption for all others as well the grace of the resurrection, end quote. You see what Athanasius is saying is he's trying to defend who Christ is in the 300s. Jesus, the Son of God, became man so that he could, according to his humanity, do what needed to be done, to do the dying, to do the obeying in our place to do the crying without sin, to do the grieving and hungering without sin, to have a will that was never tainted by sin, to have a soul that even when it agonized, didn't sin, but so that he could die. That was the penalty of the garden, wasn't it, boys and girls? Human beings were told, disobey and die. So a human being has come who is also fully God, who perfectly obeyed that we might live. Brothers and sisters, this is gripping. These hands have sinned. These feet have walked in the path of wickedness. This will and this intellect have sinned, desired things that God doesn't want it to desire. This body of a man has hungered and sinned in it 
has thirsted and been discontent. This mind has thought thoughts that were murderous. This will has stolen. This one grew in just a little wisdom full of sin and not always in favor with God or men. But I have, I have one who has assumed my complete humanity, whose hands never worked evil, whose feet never walked the path of sin, whose will and intellect are still uncorrupted by sin, who hungered and thirst and agonized in my place, yet without sin. He has assumed every last bit of my nature that He may bring the corruption of my nature to the grave and rise in such glorious reality that there, as He stands, I have a full and complete substitute, not just at the cross, but in His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, and His seated reality, His exaltation at the right hand of the Majesty on high, which is according to both natures. You walk through your week this week, you see horrible corruption still remaining, and you say, but I have one who has assumed my nature and walked my steps without sin. You feel the guilt of your lies, your deceit, your lack of worship, your laziness as the Bible sits open in front of you. You feel that. You feel the pains of hunger and you see in your soul arising all kinds of discontent. You say to yourself, Lord, I repent. And by your grace, you've given me one who has never failed. And he, even he, the God-man, sits at your right hand. Oh, Paul has given us by the Spirit a glorious truth. Born of a woman. I was born of a woman. Born to die and stay dead. But he was born of a woman to die and to rise. And me with him. And you with him if you're attached to him by faith. Do you trust this one who is the God to be worshipped and yet who has put on your flesh that you may live forever in his record? Well, fourthly and finally, it's important that we see the humanity of Christ because we must know and worship correctly. The humanity of Christ became a big deal in the early church. So did the divinity of Christ. But you remember what Jesus prays shortly before going to the cross, don't you? In John 17, 3, he says to the Father, This is eternal life, that they may know you, and they may know the one that you've sent. You need to know who Jesus is if you're going to have eternal life. Knowledge is important. But later, the same disciple who records that for us will write several letters. John, boys and girls. And John makes some very startling claims towards the end of the Bible. Turn over to 2 John. There were a group of people in the early church calling themselves Christians. Oh, we worship Jesus like you. Let us come and feast at your communion table. We believe the same things you believe. But they didn't. You see, they were 
a group called the Docetists. You don't need to know that name unless you want to, but it just means to seem or to appear. They believed that, yeah, Jesus is important, but he only appeared to be human. He he wasn't really human because matter is evil. (laughs) And God would never corrupt himself with matter. John, who walked with Jesus and saw Jesus in the flesh, says this in 2 John 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as what? Coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, namely that he's truly God and truly man, does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him. We must know who Christ is. Our salvation absolutely requires that our Savior be very God, but very man. The Puritan William Perkins helps us to flesh this out. Listen to what he says, speaking about Jesus, writing in the 1600s, of those things which are spoken or attributed to Christ, some are only as understood of his divine nature. John 8, 58, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Colossians 1.15, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Some, again, agree only to his humanity as born, suffered, dead, buried. Lastly, other things are understood only of both natures united together. Matthew 17.5, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. End quote. See what Perkins does there at the very end? He tells us, hey, this is one person, but he's got two natures. And sometimes in Scripture, you see him acting according to both natures. But when you hear the Father say of the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, there is for once a human being over whom the eternal God says, I am well pleased. Survey your life. Survey my life. This father won't say that of me. He won't say it of you. Our brother read the law earlier. Just read the law of God. God is not perfectly pleased in any of us because we have fallen short of His glory. But of this one, heaven cries out, Well done. Which is why the scripture says it is so important to be united to him. To have him as your spiritual representative. For him to be your federal head. No longer a covenant breaker under Adam, but a covenant keeper in Christ. The one who is a perfect substitute. So another church father, John of Damascus, could say this. A lot of these church fathers had to really write a lot about who Jesus was. And we owe them, by God's grace, a debt of gratitude. 
Because in times when the church was being persecuted, and then later when persecution ended, there were turmoils, conflicts, and it all, most of it centered on who is Jesus. Listen to what John of Damascus said, very much like Gregory. For the whole Christ assumed the whole me, that he might grant salvation to the whole me. For what is unassumable is incurable. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ being born of a woman means there's not one aspect of your life that cannot be redeemed. Not your sight, not your ears, not your mind, not your sexuality, not your choices, not your hunger, not your thirst. He's assumed a whole you so that he can, according to his humanity, be perfect and offer himself up for you. Born of a woman. Praise be his name. Let's pray. Living God. May the incarnation of our blessed Savior permeate our faculties this day. When we see our sin, may we look to Him, the perfect one. When we see our failures, may we look to Him. May we be reminded that as the apostles teach us by the Spirit, we are united to Him. He has taken our record and given us His. We've been credited with His entire record of obedience. So Lord, You've freed us from the corruption of sin and death and brought us by Your Spirit into life. As we look to Him, may we grow more and more into His image. As we see the graves of our brothers and sisters, May we remember it's not the final word. Humanity has been raised in Him. When we see the corruption and absolute destruction of this world, may we think on, meditate on the glorious reality that there is a true man, yes, truly God, but a true man who has ascended and is seated on His throne. Empty us of our vain thoughts of Christ and fill us with hope-giving, faith-strengthening thoughts from your word that we have one who has assumed the whole me that we may be redeemed. In Jesus' name.